Today's reading is from John 12, 1 to 11. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served, while Lazarus was among those reclining with him at the table. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume, she poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priests made plan to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. Well, for the during the 2000s, I spent about eight years working um, part-time on a, my um, PhD research into Aboriginal mission history. And I was so glad to have picked an area of research that uh, was inspiring to my faith. Um, now, it is true that um, when you research, especially colonial mission history, which is what I was looking at, 19th century mission history in Australia, it's true that you can have many stories that are regretful, um, that they could be discouraging to your faith potentially. Because it is true that many missionaries um, did condescend Indigenous people and their culture. And some even were complicit in the abuse that the settler society um, uh, committed towards uh, Indi Aboriginal people. But, and, and you know, because the missionaries were products of their era, just as we are products of our era. And in a hundred years' time, historians will look back on us and look in horror at some of the things that we did at some of our practices. But one of the great furfies of um, progressivism, I, I guess you could say, is that, um, is that humanity is always moving forward in, 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 uh, into greater wisdom and insight. Um, sometimes we actually go backwards and sometimes the church progresses and sometimes it regresses. Um, and while Christian missionaries have progressed with regards to understanding and respecting of cultures, Christians and the mission movement as a whole have, I, I would argue, perhaps regressed in some ways in terms of their long-term, our, our long-term devotion to the people and the mission to whom we are trying to reach. There's, there's been a, bit, a change that's occurred. I remember one head of a mission organisation overseas saying that the hardest thing to manage for him was the constant toing and froing of Western missionaries who'd come for one or two years and then go home again um, when things got difficult. 
Um, but there was once upon a time when missionaries, missionaries gave their whole lives. They would hop on a boat from Europe and they'd, or where, wherever they were coming from and they would go to the other side of the world and they would spend the rest of their lives. Um, they'd be far from any support. They wouldn't have any Zoom meetings or emails. They wouldn't even necessarily have a visit from anyone for many years, if, if at all. Um, and these missionaries embodied humility and that lowly identification with Jesus' death and resurrection. Let me just give you a few examples of what I'm talking about. On the top there, we've got William Carey, the English Baptist missionary, father of the modern missions movement, served for 41 years as a missionary in India until he died in 1834. He translated the whole Bible into Bengali. How incredible is that? Or you could see another um, 19th century important Australian missionaries, Nellie and Topsy Saunders. Um, they're on the on the outsides. It's their mother in the middle there, who went out from Melbourne, I think from St Hilary's Q, actually. Um, they were the f- first Australian missionary martyrs, um, and uh, they they went to China, and then during in the late eighteen nineties, and then during that time, uh, an anti foreign sentiment grew, and the ve- there, there was these group called the Vegetarian Rebels in China. And they came and attacked the mission stations where the, the Saunders sisters were. And the rebels came asking for a stash of gold. And then when there was none, they rounded up Nellie and Topsy, who were, I think are only 19 years old at the time, and they killed them with spears. You know, these women, young women, gave their life to serving Jesus. Or down the bottom there, there's a woman that you may not have heard of, another English missionary, Lilius uh, Trotter, who's a, an English artist who became a missionary to Muslims in Algeria. And um, she funded herself there and arrived not knowing any Arabic, um, started working doing domestic work and then learned Arabic on the side. And about 30 years later, that she, she'd actually established a whole team of missionaries in Algeria. And uh, she created a new non European method of evangelism using cafes to explain the gospel and and she would read Bible stories with drum beats. She was a real um, pioneer and she, she even used the Quran as a stepping stone to talking about Jesus um, and she died in 1928 about 40 years after she arrived. This, this is what devotion looks like these kind of people and they're in the history of the church and they're not all stories of um, colonial oppression. Many of these people are heroes of our Christian faith, and we need to know their story. So I always say, if you want to be encouraged, um, find some good mission um, biographies to read. Um, and what I want to say this morning is that this is what devotion looks like. And I want to call you to give your very best to Jesus I want to call you to serve him with everything you've got. And as we turn to John chapter 12 and the story of Mary washing Jesus' feet with a perfume, I want you to identify with the humble and lowliness of Jesus' death. The passage that we've had today is um, a section uh, of John's gospel which begins a new sort of part or a new half of the gospel known as the Book of Glory. And it's called that because from chapter 12 onwards, it's like a kind of a a highway to the cross. You know, you can see Jesus 
turning his eyes straight to the cross. And that begins in this story. And it's called the Book of Glory because um, Jesus' glorification is the, the moment that um, he is on the cross in all his um, in his glory before God. This event in the life of Jesus is close to the time of Passover, and um, we've just had one of Jesus' most amazing miracles, which is the raising of Lazarus, which caused a real stir in in the town of Bethany, and you know people were hearing about it and coming to faith, and and there were others who were worried that. Um, that Jesus would get too many followers and they started a plot to kill Jesus. It's also the third example of this particular household uh, of, of Lazarus and Mary and Martha quietly being with Jesus. We've had Martha serving him. And then in verse two, we see, verse 2, we see Lazarus reclining with him. And now we'll focus on Mary washing his feet. And there's variations of this story in all the Gospels. Um, it's most similar to the Mark and Matthew story, who are very close. The Luke story describes a different encounter with a sinful woman. Um, and we think it's probably a different story. Um, so I'm going to th- focus on three characters in the story. I'm going to focus on Mary, who's um, our example of selfless discipleship. And um, then I'm going to focus on uh, Judas, who's our example of religious um, selfishness, um, and then Jesus, who honours the true disciple. So let's begin with Mary, our example of selfless discipleship. Let's uh, look at verse 1 and 2. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honour. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. So we're in Bethany and we're probably in the home of Lazarus and Mary and Martha, although um, John doesn't actually tell us that, but we probably can assume that. And it's a dinner given in Jesus' honour. And it's not often that we see the Christian disciples throwing a party for Jesus. It's effectively a dinner party in you know celebration of who he is. Um, perhaps this is the only example of this kind of thing recorded in the Gospels. It's interesting that we see Jesus accepting the invitation. One might have wrongly thought that, you know, Jesus in his humility might say, oh, no, you don't have to throw a party for me. No, no, that's, I'm not that kind of person. Um, you know, he's the humble Messiah. He would never do that. But in fact, the opposite is the case. Um, he accepts the invitation and goes to the dinner party in his honour. And in, the, in fact, in the very next passage, we'll see this whole thing escalate. Uh, we'll see him riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, being praised as a king. So this is all part of him heading towards the cross. And we see Lazarus reclining at the table, and so were the others who were at this party, this dinner. Um, their feet extended away from the table. Um, you might not normally eat your dinner on the floor. But if you go to the Afghan gallery in Brunswick Street, which I've done once or twice, and you, you go upstairs to eat, you get to lie on the floor and eat dinner, and they serve you while you're reclining on the floor. And that's, that's kind of what we're, we're picturing here. Their feet extended away from the table, making it possible, in fact, to anoint as much of the person as one might wish, uh, including um, their feet. Um, so this is going to be important in a second. 
And it signifies how much people were humbling themselves before Jesus and how much they were devoted to him. Well, look at verse 3. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair, and the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Mary pours out a lot of expensive perfume, about 300 grams. You might think that's not much. But nard is an oil extracted from the root um, root and spike um, of the nard plant grown in India. And in the Greek it said... It also adds the word um, that, it, that, that it's a pistikes nard, which we think translates to pure nard, pure uh, perfume, uh, pure essential oils, which is why it costs so much. Um, when Joe and I were in Byron Bay, this time last year, in fact, we bought some essential oils off a woman at a market who, and she makes her own essential oils, and it's so much work to extract the oils, which is why it's so expensive. Um, and normally this kind of oil is poured on the head, but here it is poured on Jesus' feet. And this is an act of humility for Mary. And it points forward to Jesus' act of washing the disciples' feet in the next chapter. She shows herself in advance to understand what it means to be a true disciple. She showed her great devotion. John says that the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume, which suggests not only extravagant love, but that the fragrance of Mary's devotion to Jesus is going to spread far beyond this dinner party. Mary shows here true devotion. She shows us that we need to be willing to serve Jesus in humble and unglamorous ways. Because what she was doing is lowering herself to him. God might not be calling you um, to a life that is exciting uh, or to a ministry that's exciting and, and fun in your, in, your, what, in your understanding. What God might call you to in your life might be difficult. It might be challenging. It might be hard. It might be costly. And Mary is sort of modelling this, this costly discipleship. She washes his feet with her hair. I mean, this is, this is quite extraordinary. Jewish women didn't normally uh, allow their hair to be unveiled like that in public. This would be normally seen as having loose morals. But she didn't care about the other disciples' reactions. She was bold. And this is an example of bold discipleship. True discipleship requires boldness. Sometimes you have to expect people to respond negatively to the risks that you take in your worship and adoration of Jesus. Some people feel threatened that perhaps you're exposing them as less devoted as you are. The point is not to show off, but nor is it to be afraid and back away in your devotion and in your discipleship. I love this quote from... um, uh, one of my favourite Christian writers, James K.O. Smith, um, who writes in his, his book, his devotion book, um, On the Road with St. Augustine, which is like a, uh, you know, you can read through it each day in your devotions. Um, and he draws out the discipleship principles, but sort of has a kind of a, anyway, you can read it for yourself. But um, look at this quote that, that's so good. The opposite of ambition is not humility. It is sloth. Passivity, timidity, and complacency. 
We sometimes like to comfort ourselves by imagining that the ambitious are prideful and arrogant so that those of us who never risk, never aspire, never launch out into the deep get to wear the moralizing mantle of humility. But this imagining is often just thin cover for a lack of courage, even laziness. Playing it safe isn't humble. Augustine never stopped being ambitious. What changed was the target, the goal, the how of his striving. What do I love when I long for achievement? That is the Augustinian question. What do I love when I long for achievement? What, what is the ambition really about? Well, if it's about giving everything to Jesus and bringing glory to him, then that's the right kind of love. What Mary did was gutsy. It required boldness, even leadership, you could say. She did what no other disciple could do. And I want to, I want to say, I want to do everything I can to resist the middle-class Anglican ur- urge to play it safe, to not ruffle feathers, to not break the mould, to be bland. I want to resist that with everything I've got. I don't know if as a kid you ever heard the irreverent comedy, um, The Twelfth Man. At school we used to listen to it. It's a bit rude, I have to say. But what he used to do is impersonate the uh, Channel 9 wide world of sports uh, commentators, cricket commentators. And he did this skit about Mr. and Mrs. Benno, you know, the as in Richie Benno, the famous long, long-standing um, cricket commentator who was also a great bowler. And one famous um, skit where Mrs. Benno asked him what trousers he would be wearing that day. She asked, will it be the cream, the bone, the white, the off-white, the ivory or the beige? I love that. See, I don't want us to become, as a church, the equivalent of an old man's casual trousers. You know, I, I don't want us to be a church that is about as colourful as a, as a pair of faded chinos. Jesus wants us to step out in faith and be bold and to pour the expensive perfume over his feet. I mean, this was so bold. What she was doing here, Mary, was symbolic of the embalming of his dead body. It's as though Jesus had already died. This is so profound. Mary is identifying with his imminent death. Well, let's look at Judas as an example of selfish religiosity. Verse 4. But one of the disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. John, unlike the other Gospels, focuses on Judas's reaction. What he says, probably the others were thinking. This is brought out in the Matthew and Mark accounts of the same story. Judas points out the expense. Years, one year's wages, wage worth of perfume. But his objection is superficial in its motivation. See, one denarius was the daily wage given to a common day labourer. So 300 denarii is roughly a year's wage for a fully employed labourer because no money would be earned on Sabbaths and on holidays. 
the sum was enormous. It's possible Mary's family were, were wealthy or perhaps she just inherited it. You know how many families might have that one special thing that they've inherited over the years and maybe it's a painting or something or uh, an antique, an heirloom, a ring or some jewellery or something. This is what maybe she had in her special prized possession. But Judas, he, his logic is utilitarian. He, he's putting pragmatic compassion, concern for the poor, against extravagant devotion to Jesus. Now it's true that sometimes self-righteous piety dampens compassion for the poor. Sometimes that can happen. You get these Christians who say that ministry to the poor is not really that important. But then it's also the case that there's this kind of pseudo-social concern for the poor that can occur, that can dampen true worship and adoration. There's two mistakes that can be possibly made by the Christian. And Judas's personal greed for material things is masquerading here as altruism, as generosity. You might remember back to Jesus' parable of the Good Shepherd. Perhaps Judas is a bit like the hired hand who cares for the sheep, not really. Not, he nicks off as soon as there's any, any issue. He doesn't really care for people. See, Judas was the treasurer for the, the apostles. He kept the money bag and perhaps he hoped that the expensive perfume could be sold and then they could get the cash and then he could dip into that for his own personal gain. It's interesting, whenever churches do building programs, one of the most common reactions is that there's often a person or people in the church who are are afraid of change and they speak up and resist the building program and they say, what about the poor? The money should be given to the poor. It's it's the most common reaction, um, that there's always that person or that group. But this is creating a false binary, either the poor or the church. And it's false because we need to do both. And if you invest in the growth of the church, you will end up giving more to the poor in the long run. Perhaps if a particular church never gave money to the poor, then you know that argument, the Judas argument, could be valid. But that's not usually the case. What people sometimes forget is that some faithful Christian, some time in the history of their church has given financially to the building of their church building, which they've benefited from decades later. It's, it's necessary that the church spends money on itself. This is a form of devotion to Christ. This is what he has asked us to do as Christians, is to go out into the world and to serve him. Now, it's true sometimes churches have their priorities wrong and they spend their money unwisely. But this isn't always the case, and it's not usually the case either. The churches who have buildings and never spend money on them are simply putting off the work for the next generation to have to spend even more money on. And the same argument you can put towards uh, church plants. They cost a lot of money. Although they are a lot cheaper than building new church buildings and putting a congregation in them, what we're doing at our church is investing in mission and in the growth of the church. We're trying our best in, with, the, with the skills that we've got and the gifts that God's given us to reach people and bring new life to a new era. 
And this is the best sort of thing Christians can invest in. Nobody else is going to invest in the growth of the church except for us. That's our job. So let's not be like Judas, who was religious in that he wanted to be seen to be doing the right thing, but didn't really care about what he was saying. Let's not be like Judas, who was selfish because he's doing it really for himself. See, this little encounter with Judas here is a warning for us not to be on the high moral ground when we criticize other people's act of devotion. Are we being self-righteous? Do we really know the facts about people's motivation for serving Jesus? Are we thinking of the big picture? Mary was certainly thinking of the big picture. Perhaps we could have a Judas-like selfish motivation for criticizing someone else's devotion, and we need to say sorry for that. Well, let's look at Jesus' reaction, because he... His reaction is to honour the true disciple. Look at verse 7 and 8. Leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. Jesus clearly takes Mary's side and he rebukes Judas. He refers to his burial and this makes the overall link of this whole passage to his burial really clear. Mary seemed to know that the end for Jesus was close by. And he says this saying, which is, which is a challenging saying, you will always have the poor among you, he says. Take opportunity to serve me while you have it. And this is not an excuse to neglect the poor or to be stingy towards the poor. What it is, is a reminder that the poor will always be here, be here around the disciples, be there, and the disciples will be there for them, always. But, but this will be long after Jesus is gone and ascended into heaven. But only Jesus can speak this way. Because he sees the death, his own death on the cross and burial around the corner. And it's also because he knows that as the son of God, he is to receive the same honour that is due to the God, God the Father. In Mark's account of this story, it makes it clear that it is Jesus' rebuke here of Judas that finally prompts Judas to approach the religious authorities with a proposal of betrayal. John doesn't explicitly say this, but at the start of the next chapter, he keeps tracking Judas when his betrayal begins to unfold and the devil is guiding him along. So, in contrast, what we see in Mary is a disciple, in contrast to Judas, that is, in what we see in Mary is a disciple who is ultimately identifying with Jesus' death. And this is what full devotion as a disciple looks like. If you want to understand how to really give everything of your life to Jesus, then identify with his death. And she is giving up her life to gain it, just like those missionaries that I showed you at the start. And that is what we are called to do. What does this look like in practice? It means every morning praying that you can be selfless. It means being quick to listen and slow to speak. Notice that in this whole story, Mary doesn't say a single word, but it's Judas that does all the talking. 
It means giving your very best to Jesus, not just your scraps. So in your time management, prioritizing your worship and your ministry. In your financial management, prioritize your worship and your ministry. As Jenny challenged us earlier, what things could you give to Jesus? What could you, what of you could you give more to Jesus? What precious thing could you give in your honour of Jesus? Not, not to earn his love, but to show your love and devotion. This story is a call for us to bow down in worship to Jesus, who is the ultimate, selfless, humble and lowly king, whose death and resurrection has meant that we can be true disciples. So be like Mary and devote yourself to identifying with his life, with his death and with his resurrection.